Good morning. We we got uh, slides. Did you get a copy of this this morning? Okay. If you didn't, grab one of the ushers because you'll probably need it. Uh, we didn't have probably enough for each person, but we had enough for each grouping <laughs> to have one to look at. Uh, I'll be putting it up on the, putting that structure up on a slide, but uh, there's so many words there, it's hard to see on the slide. Um, all right. Last time in chapter one, uh, we we kind of finished up that chapter, and we saw that uh, starting in verse 18, going back a few Sundays, Paul began talking about the downward spiral of mankind. Um, and he said first that men are without excuse when they deny the true God because God has made himself clearly known uh, to all men through what has been made. But men not only denied the truth that God revealed of himself, they suppressed that truth. Even though they knew God, they refused to humbly honor him as God and give thanks. They refused to worship him. Professing to be wise, they became fools. and exchanged the truth of God for a lie, choosing to worship the creature rather than the creator. And a part of their lie was the exaltation of man, the exaltation of self over God. And their failed theology, their idolatry, played itself out then in failed morality. They behaved based on their lie. And God then gave them over to degrading passions and to a depraved mind to act according to their own devices. Not only did men engage in abominable sin, but they gave hearty approval to those who engaged in such sin. In Romans chapter 2, Paul continues his indictment of all mankind, starting with those who pat themselves on the back for judging the sins that they see in other people, even though they're guilty of those same sins themselves. Let's talk about a little bit first about uh, where we're going to go. First, we're going to talk about the structure of the passage, and this goes to that handout that I gave you. Uh, there's some interesting things going on in the way this passage is arranged in the text. Then we're going to see the breakout of that passage, first in verses 1 through 5, that every man falls under the righteous judgment of God. Paul will first address the hypocrisy of self-righteousness, uh, saying that you who judge others condemn yourselves. We're going to discuss who the you is, because Paul shifts from third person to second person in this passage. And then in that section, we'll also talk about our own struggle with hypocrisy, how this applies to us as believers, not just to those who are indicted as fallen men. Uh, fallen men. Then in verses 6 through 11, we'll see Paul declare that God judges men impartially. He applies one standard. And finally, in verses 12 to 16, he says that with or without the law, all who have sinned will be judged by God. First, let's talk a little bit about the structure. Uh, there's a very interesting flow in this passage, and I believe Paul uses a literary device here that we call a chiasm, or some Texans would call it a chiasm. Uh, I'll explain what a chiasm is, but first, I, uh, and by the way, I am a Texan, third generation. <clears throat> I should say that the only time that I pay much attention to, to literary devices in the text of Scripture is when they seem fairly obvious, because I do not want to impose something on the text that's not there. But I have to say, this one fairly well jumps off the page, especially in verses 6 through 11. So I thought it was uh, worth some attention. Also, I want to mention that I don't believe we have to go outside of the Bible to observe, understand, or benefit from the structural and literary devices that the Bible contains. The Bible itself is filled with the divine genius of God. 
It's filled with verbal artistry that I consider to be unparalleled by anything that men have devised. And it blesses me when I get a, when I, I think I've got a glimpse of that artistry, of the elegance of the mind of God. So I pray that this little glimpse blesses you as well. Uh, I also want to say that while the structural or literary clues in the passage and in any passage of Scripture may help us to understand the emphasis in the passage, I don't believe the essential meaning of any passage is dependent on smoking out those clues. Uh, so, if you don't see the structure the same way I do, that's absolutely fine. Uh, just chalk it up to uh, one person's layout of the passage and leave it at that. Now, I said I believe Paul employs a, a device called a chiasm. Chiasm is a particular form of parallelism. And parallelism occurs thousands upon thousands of times in Scripture. Uh, it's rampant in the Psalms and Proverbs. But it occurs many times in other books as well. Parallelism is simply the repetition of an equivalent or parallel statement, equivalent or related statement, uh, or concept for purposes of like amplifying it or enhancing it or even contrasting it uh, so that the first and the second when c- compared together, together give you a, a fuller idea of what's going on. Uh, a chiasm occurs when a set of statements is presented and then a second set of statements or ideas that's parallel to the first is presented in reverse order. Uh, it's essentially like walking forward through a set of statements and then walking backward through the same set. Think of it as a verbal uh, mirror image, ABC, then CBA. The emphasis in the chiasm is typically on the center propositions, okay? Although sometimes there's a secondary emphasis on the outside, the first and last propositions. You with me? All right, you'll see it graphically here in a moment. Finally, There's often additional information or some kind of a logical twist that occurs in the second set when you're backing out of the propositions. There's something new that's added that helps to creatively drive home the point of the chiasm. Now, one very simple uh, two-level biblical chiasm is in Matthew 23, 12. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The emphasis is on the two center phrases that have to do with humility, because humility before God and men is our assignment from God. Exaltation is entirely God's business. Either God will humble you or you will humble yourself, but either way, you will be humbled. And the second or parallel set of phrases, uh, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, has a twist. And the twist has to do with who's doing the exalting and who's doing the humbling. So the second set of phrases here is not equivalent, but it is parallel uh, to the first. Now, if that's still clear as mud, hopefully it will become a little clearer as we see how this works out in the passage we're looking at this morning. The chiasm in Romans 2 covers a lot more ground than that little one in Matthew 23, 12. But I believe it helps us to see more vividly the heart of Paul's very powerful argument in this passage. Now, here's how I see the structure developed. In verses 1 through 5 and in verses 12 through 16, the assertion is that all men will be judged by one righteous judge, and that judge is God. Uh, Those two outside statements focus on the fact that all men fall under God's judgment. Now, the two center statements... Focus on the wrath and judgment of God that is due to men and that will occur when God judges. Whether it's men who make the pretense of righteousness by condemning the sin they see in others, or men who know the law of God through the scriptures, or men who know the law of God only through the revelation of himself in nature and conscience, the reality is that in the day when God's righteous judgment is poured out upon men, Every man will be found to deserve God's righteous judgment. In verses 1 through 5, Paul harshly rebukes any man who considers himself worthy to pass judgment on other men. 
Three times in verses 2 through 4, he speaks of the coming wrathful judgment of God. Now in chapter 1, verse 20, before this, Paul said that men are without excuse before God for rejecting his revelation of himself through that which has been made. A revelation that Paul says is clear, clearly seen by all men. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, he says men are also without excuse before God. But this time it's for passing judgment on those who they think are committing a more grievous sin than they. Having detailed the downward spiral of false theology and abominable morality that follows from man's refusal to humbly and gratefully worship the true God, Paul ended chapter 1 by saying, in verse 32, Although men know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice these things. Now, some who were listening to his argument might have thought at this point (laughs) that one sure way to prove that this scathing indictment didn't apply to them was not to give hearty approval to those who commit the kinds of sins that Paul was talking about in chapter 1, but instead to condemn those practices. They might have thought, surely if I show God that I am as repulsed by those gross sinners as he is, then he'll see me as righteous. But Paul, in no uncertain terms, says it doesn't work that way. Not even close. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you are without excuse every man who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Every man who passes judgment on another man is still in the category of being without excuse before God. Now, in he, he uh, again, Paul already said in verse 32 that all men know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. And among the things that God universally made known to men is that certain things are evil. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, men may deny that, that that knowledge is evident and clearly available, but God says it is. Um, not only that these things are evil, but that they are worthy of death in 132. That's the way he put it. And among the things that, that God says... I'm sorry, in 2.2... Paul appeals to that universal knowledge. If you look at what's up here, in the second verse he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Literally, verse 2 says, We know that the judgment of God is according to truth upon those who practice such things. He's presenting a statement that his readers should readily agree with, especially since they're eagerly pointing the finger at other people. Uh, In today's... This course, we might add the word right and a question mark at the end of verse 2 and come up with something like this. Now, we all know that the judgment of God justly falls upon those guys over there who are practicing such things, right? And everyone in Paul's audience would enthusiastically say, right. But then Paul turns their hearty endorsement of that statement against them. In verse 3, he says, in effect, Indeed, those who do, do such things most certainly deserve the judgment of God. But while you're breaking your arm, patting yourself on the back for agreeing with the obvious, I've got another question for you. Do you suppose that when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? The answer to that question should also be obvious. If a sin is worthy of death, then condemning that sin in others while doing it yourself is even more worthy of death because now you've added the element of hypocrisy. But the problem is that men vigorously resist agreeing with God that they're guilty of 
the, the very sins that they readily condemn in others. Part of our sin nature is hypocrisy. Uh, we have kind of one directional tunnel vision. <laughs> now, verse 3 sends me back uh, mentally to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, you might turn there for a moment. 2 Samuel 12. King David, you're familiar with the story probably, uh, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his most valiant soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. And in an effort to cover his sin of adultery, David had Joab, the commander of his armies, send Uriah on a suicide mission so that he would be killed. David somehow justified the idea that he could cover adultery with murder. And while David was still in denial about his culpability for these grievous sins, God sent a prophet named Nathan to confront David. And the way Nathan handled this is he told David a story about a landowner in David's kingdom. He drew him in with this story about this poor farmer who had one little ewe lamb that he dearly loved, just as if it were a part of his family. And he said this rich landowner for whom the farmer worked came and took that farmer's little ewe lamb and slew it to make a feast for a visitor who had come to his home. Now David had been a shepherd boy and a very devoted one at that. So he understood the farmer's love for that lamb. Burning with what he considered to be righteous indignation, David said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. He deserves to die, but the law requires that he make fourfold restitution. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. With the setup complete, Nathan then said to David, You are the man. David was enraged at the thought of a man who for his own selfish purposes would kill a lamb that was so highly valued by another man. And yet David had killed a great warrior to cover his act of adultery with that man's wife. When we read such a story, it seems astounding to us that a person could justify such a thing in his mind for even a second. And yet Romans 2 tells us this is the nature of man. Unless someone thinks that a child of God who has the indwelling Holy Spirit could never engage in such gross hypocrisy, much less the murder and adultery that led to it, Bear in mind that long before any of this, in 1 Samuel 16, when David was a youth and he was anointed by the prophet Samuel as God's chosen king, the text in 1 Samuel 16 says, The Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. In Psalm 51, David prays a prayer of contrition for this very set of sins after Nathan convicted him. And he cries out to God saying, Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Now I understand that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a new covenant phenomenon. But I believe we cannot argue with the fact that David had the benefit of the Spirit's work in his life and in his heart and yet he still did these things. In Romans 2, Paul, on behalf of God, is declaring to all men, when you say that man over there is so wretched that he deserves the condemnation of God, God says to you, you are that man. And then in verse 4, Paul presents a question that strikes me as a very important parenthesis in his argument in all that he says about man's well-deserved judgment. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And to the Jews among Paul's readers who knew about the priesthood 
and the sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant, which God had provided to Israel as a temporary covering for their sin and a foreshadowing of the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that question should have pierced their hearts. It was an important question for the saints in Rome, and it's an important question for all of us who have been made the objects of God's beaming grace in Jesus Christ. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But Paul answers his own question in the next verse. If it's left up to men, that is not how they respond to the kindness of God. In verse 5, he says, But because of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart, your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. (laughs) See, your judgment is unrighteous. But there's a righteous judgment, and it's only from God. And you're, you're banking it, you're storing it up for yourself because of your rebellious and stubborn heart. He's saying, here's how things actually work. God has made himself known to all men. The unapproachable light of his character and his being exposes the utter darkness and depravity of man's character and man's being, making it clear that all men are worthy of death. But rather than humbling themselves before God, men respond by denying the infinite gap between his character and theirs. They attribute to themselves some approximation of the righteousness of God that they determine should make them okay with him. And then they point their finger at other people that they conclude are less righteous than themselves, and they say, see God, we're not all that bad. And they justify their own sin and then proceed to stubbornly walk in it. The stubborn and unrepentant heart of every man ensures that he is storing up wrath for himself. And in case his readers think that the wrathful judgment of God that he's talking about here is only a temporary punishment this side of heaven, in the latter part of verse 5, he says, In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, Paul gets specific about the nature and timing of the judgment that he's talking about. And then later in the In verse 16, he refers again to that day. He says, The day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secret, uh, the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. The day that Paul's talking about is a future judgment that will occur through Jesus Christ. A judgment that will involve the outpouring of God's wrath in righteousness. That is, a fully justified judgment against men. Now, since Paul is talking here about the final judgment of God against men, it's important for us to understand who the you is that he's talking about. Um, Make sure I'm in the right spot here. Yes. Is the you unbelievers mixed in with the church at Rome? Is it specifically Jewish unbelievers? Could it possibly include believers? Well, we noted in the first message in this series that Paul's direct audience, those to whom he explicitly stated that he wrote this epistle, are the called of Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. All who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints... So Paul says that he was explicitly writing this letter to believers. But he does a very interesting thing with with his use of person uh, in this first three chapters of this epistle that I believe clears up pretty decisively the apparent uh, conundrum posed by his statement here about God's wrathful judgment. And I think this is just another bit of verbal artistry on Paul's part 
as he writes this amazing letter by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 118 through 320, Paul walks through the persons this way. In verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, he's in the third person. They, them. In chapter 2, he uses the second person. You. In chapter 3, he uses the first person. We, our, and my. (laughs) And in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3, he makes it infinitely clear that he's talking about every person. By the time he finishes the the proof of the universal condemnation of men in chapters 1 through 3, Paul will include even himself in that condemnation. Just look at chapter 3, verse 7. At every point in his argument, Paul declares that those about whom he is speaking, they, you, we, all of us, have stored up, we have merited only one thing for ourselves, and that is the just judgment of God. So it turns out to be fairly pointless to agonize over whether he's saying these things to believers or unbelievers. Because at this point in his argument, his purpose is to make it very clear that everyone deserves the same destiny. We all deserve the righteous judgment of God. And the believers in Rome would need to clearly understand this very painful heart of the bad news so that they would understand how it highlights the magnitude of the good news. Because the Roman believers, just like all of us who are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, are called to preach this message that Paul is laying out before us, this gospel by which all who believe are eternally saved. Now, one of the most frequent and prominent themes throughout the Pauline epistles is Paul's stern rebuke against Judaizers. And I want to talk about that for a moment because I believe it's very connected here. And I believe it informs where he goes from here uh, on in chapter 2 and 3. Judaizers were legalistic Jews who taught that Christians had to observe the requirements of the Mosaic law in order either to be saved or to be godly Christians, to be at the highest level of righteousness as believers. It's quite clear in Galatians and in other epistles that Paul wrote, that he considered some of those from the camp of the Judaizers to be believers. Believers who were compromising the grace of God by adding back works of the law. That was mentioned some in the worship this morning. And then they were pointing fingers at those who didn't measure up to their standard of righteous law-keeping. In Paul's day, there were... um, there were Jewish believers who were giving their Gentile brothers in Christ the cold shoulder. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't associate with them. They refused to lovingly fellowship with them because they didn't consider them to be good law keepers. Throughout his epistles, Paul addresses in the strongest possible terms the Judaizing influences that were threatening the church of Jesus Christ at this early point just as it was being established. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, Paul accused the apostle Peter and his dear friend Barnabas of, quote, not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And this harsh accusation was precisely because Peter and Barnabas and other influential believers from the Jerusalem church were succumbing out of fear to the wishes of those whom Paul called the party of the circumcision, the Jews, specifically the Judaizers. And they were being carried away by their hypocrisy. Now there can be no question, no doubt, that Paul knew Peter and Barnabas to be his brothers in Christ. But he accused them of not being straightforward about the gospel of Jesus Christ because they feared reprisal by the Judaizers more than they feared the ramifications of compromising the grace of the gospel. So here's my question. 
If Peter and Barnabas could so easily drift into hypocrisy and legalism and self-righteousness, what about you? Is it possible that you might have the same tendency? I know I do. Paul's rebuke in Romans 2 is perfectly in line with the similar rebukes that he directs toward believers in several other contexts when those brothers or sisters are drifting away from grace. Legalism, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, hypocrisy. These were big, big problems in the early church. And they still are in today's church. Self-righteousness is always hypocritical. It always undermines grace. It is always sin. And it always moves us toward death and condemnation. Not that God will let the believer be condemned. But it moves us in that direction. Now I'm going to pick on the young folks uh, in our group again. I'm prone to do. But please understand that I do it out of love for you guys. I talked last week about an important threshold that believers must cross with regard to abandoning their own reasoning and submitting themselves entirely to the Word of God. Here's another threshold that's critically important. When you're young, particularly when you're in your teens, but for some it doesn't stop there, you find it very easy to see fault in others. You're brutally discerning about the foolishness, hypocrisy, and failures that you see in other people, including your parents, (laughs) maybe especially your parents. And in large measure, you're probably accurate about the things that you're seeing in other people. But the point at which godly maturity kicks in is when you turn that same brutal discernment toward yourself and you realize that you are guilty of the very things you have so harshly and readily judged in other people. That's when you learn about genuine forgiveness and forbearance, two things that are indispensable to every believer who desires to honor God. All right, moving on. In verses 6 through 11, God, uh, Paul says that God judges men impartially in verse 6, uh, excuse me, in verse 11, but he presents the same idea uh, in verse 6 when he says, God will render to every man according to his deeds. These two verses are parallel in the structure of the passage. And they, they kind of, verses 6 through 11 form the real heart of the passage. At this point, if you're looking at the chiasm, it's verse by verse. Each verse is one level. Uh, if you take the parallel statements of verses 6 and 11, Paul is saying God will render to every man according to his deeds and he will do so without partiality. In other words, he's going to apply the same standard of measure to all men and to every man. No man will have advantage over another man. God's righteousness will be based on the deeds that the man has done. In verses 7 through 10, there's 6 and 11. In verses 7 through 10, you get to the real core of this structure. And these verses lay out that standard of measure that Paul talks talks about in 6 and 11. The standard of measure that will be applied to all men on the same basis. He presents two categories here into which the class uh, into which the deeds of men fall. The first category is in verses 7 and 10, and the second is at the heart of this structure in verses 8 and 9. He says verse starting in verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, They get eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and 
also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Now, in order to understand what Paul's doing here, let's apply a simple question to this part of his argument, verses 7 through 10. How many people are in the first category, verses 7 and 10, and how many people are in the second category in verses 8 and 9? Does Paul answer that question? I believe he does. Here's verse 1, 5, and 12. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Now look at that for a minute. (laughs) He doesn't say every one of you who judges another and does the same thing is condemned. He says every one of you who judges another is condemned because you do the same thing. You all practice the things that God sees as condemnable. And then in verse 5, after asking the question, do you think lightly of the kindness and forbearance of God that leads you to repentance? He says, but because of the stub- your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of the wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then in verse 12, he says, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I'll put up verses 7 through 10 again in the two categories. How many people, according to Paul's argument, are in the first category? Those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality. Those who, uh, who do good. I think the correct answer is one. And that's Jesus Christ. How many people fit the second category? Those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Every man who does evil, I think that's all of us. Those are the two center propositions. (laughs) And that's all of us. Now, if if you still have any question in your mind that Paul is saying all men are condemned, stay tuned, because when we get to chapter 3, there'll be no denying it. All men find themselves in the category of those who are identified by God as evil and worthy of his judgment. Now, I mentioned earlier that when you get to the second half of this kind of structure, the second set of parallel statements that's presented in reverse order, there's often a twist or some new bit of information. Here, I believe Paul uses that second set of statements to introduce the issue of the perceived distinction between Jew and Gentile. In verse 9 and again in verse 10, He says that God's judgment will be no different for the Jew compared with the Gentile, except that the Jews will be first in line. And again, Paul is very shrewdly setting the stage for the remainder of his case against mankind that he's going to proceed with through chapter 3. With or without the law, all who have sinned will be judged by God. In verse, in the verses 1 through 5 and in verses 12 through 16, uh, we have the same idea. And so in 12 through 16, he comes full circle. He comes back to the same place he started with a little bit of a twist. And that is that all men fall under the righteous judgment of God. And he's introducing an additional element, which is this distinction between Jews and Gentiles, or the perceived distinction based on the law of Moses. Uh, Again, this is going to be huge as the rest of his argument unfolds, this issue of the law. Verses 12 and 13 expand on the assertion that there is no partiality with God. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law that are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Having knowledge of God's law is no advantage unless you are also a doer of the law. Now, he makes a very interesting statement in verses 14 and 15. He says, When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What does it mean to say when the Jews do instinctively the things of the law? Now, as I was studying this, I thought at one point that Paul might actually be talking here about redeemed Gentiles, particularly when he uses wording that sounds like New Covenant wording, when he says, Gentiles who do the things of the law show the work of the law written in their hearts. But what straightened me out, I think, is the word instinctively. Do instinctively the things of the law. That's the same root word that's used in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, when, it, when Paul says, in the same way men abandon the natural, the instinctive function of the woman and burn in their desire with one another. That word seems to mean in keeping with nature at the physical or instinctive level. And I believe this goes back logically to the beginning of Paul's argument when he said in verses 18 to 20 that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly revealed to all men through what has been made, and they have been, been revealed both externally and internally. In 119, he says God made these things evident within men and to men. I think what he's getting at here in verses 14 and 15 is that all men, even Gentiles who have no access, who have had no access to the law of Moses or to the revelation of God through Scripture, through the prophets, have been given clear revelation regarding the nature of God sufficiently that they already know in their consciences the things of the law. If it were not for men's stubbornness and unrepentant heart that rejects the knowledge of God, even men without the law would have enough awareness of God's character, of his nature, to distinguish right from wrong. And if they did what was right, then the law would be no advantage. But they don't do what's right. I believe the context that immediately follows these verses makes it quite clear that Paul is saying this to put the Jews in their place. (laughs) Because the very next thing he says, we'll start looking at this next week, in verse 17 is he, he points to the Jews who rely on the law and boast in God. And he tells them they don't have a leg to stand on. He says they seriously misunderstand the role of the law. (laughs) The law is of no advantage if you are a hearer of it but aren't a doer. And if someone actually did the law without having the law, they'd still be righteous in the eyes of God. But again, the problem is no one is a doer of the law except Christ. Now, some believe there's sort of a relative standard of righteousness being addressed in these verses, that men are capable of doing some things that comply with God's law even if they are unredeemed. And that when they do, they show the law of God written in their hearts and consciences. From a purely human perspective, that seems reasonable, (laughs) sensible. But the bottom line throughout this epistle is that God is not impressed with approximations of his righteousness. At the heart of this letter is the proposition that the only righteousness that allows man to stand before God justified, sanctified, and glorified is God's own righteousness. And it is only by believing his declaration concerning his son that men come to receive his own righteousness. Any lesser righteousness is of no value in the eyes of God. This passage isn't about how men get right with God. 
It's about the fact that all men are wrong with God. It's about the universal lostness and condemnation of men, Jews and Gentiles, men who have the law of Moses, men who don't have the law of Moses, men who think they're righteous, and men who know that they're not. The ending of verse 15 is instructive. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The accusing part, I believe, is the key. Based on chapter 2, verse 1, both those who judge others and those whom they judge practice the same things and are objects of God's righteous judgment. No one keeps the law as it must be kept. In verse 16, Paul says that when the day of judgment comes, the righteous judgment of God, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. This flows directly, I believe, from what he just said about men's consciences bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. All men have the clear revelation of God through what has been made. Some also have the law, the revelation of God through Scripture. But all men have rejected God. All men refused to honor him as God or to give thanks. And when the day of God's righteous judgment comes, men's excuses about how they didn't have enough information or their declarations that they acted more righteously than others will fall flat before God because God knows the secrets in men's hearts. He knows the truth about every man. He knows that men's rejection of his clear revelation is a willful rejection, not an accidental rejection. He knows that whatever men point out as condemnable in other men, they are guilty of in their own hearts, if not their own actions. And he knows that the Jews who profess to be law keepers have in reality miserably failed the standard of God's law. Men will have no defense in that day because the truth about every man's behavior and every man's heart is fully known to God. And one last sort of by the way here. I could talk about what's, uh, about when it's actually right and proper for us as believers to judge other people, uh, to judge other, to others' sin. But I'm not going to because that's not the point here. <laughs> I thought about that issue quite a lot this week, about the critical biblical distinction between self-righteously passing judgment which this chapter does address, versus passing along the judgment of God, which other verses, other passages not only address but command of us believers. I spent time writing my thoughts out about that, and then those thoughts ended up on the cutting room floor because Paul's life or death point in this passage is that we are all worthy only of the righteous and wrathful judgment of God. And that fact alone makes us all absolutely unworthy and unqualified to judge another human being. Unless God did for us what we could never do for ourselves, we would all be hopelessly and eternally lost and condemned. For us as believers... This knowledge should drive us to our knees in humble gratitude because we know full well what we deserve from the hand of God. But instead of getting what we deserved, we get to say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. May we never take lightly the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. For any here who have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the one and only sufficient sacrifice for your sins, as the one who took your eternal debt upon himself, as the only one worthy to stand in your place and bear the righteous judgment of God that you deserved. 
Trust Him now. Trust Him today. If you don't understand what those words mean, please talk to me or somebody around you before you leave here this morning. Because this is a matter of life and death. Loving Father, I, I pray that, uh, I pray that this passage makes sense to all who are, who are uh, seeing it and look and reading it and hearing about it. I feel scattered this morning, but Lord, uh, this is powerful stuff. You lay out here in no uncertain terms that we all have merited only one thing, and that's your judgment. It's it's so important for us, Father, to know this in order that we might know the magnitude of your grace toward us in Jesus Christ. I thank you for that day almost 40 years ago, Lord, when you showed me the kindness and forbearance that you purchased for me in Christ. And you caused my heart to respond gratefully. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who thinks they have anything that makes them worthy of your holiness and your presence, that you would pierce their hearts through the words in this passage. It would cause them to abandon that self-dependence and to cling to Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior. I pray, Lord, for young people and old people and everyone in between here that, that Lord, we would abandon any hint of self-righteousness. And we would know, Lord, that, uh, that the only righteousness in this universe belongs to you. Thank you, Father, for covering us, clothing us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Those of us who have simply taken you at your word and believed in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. We pray that as we go through this week, Lord, we would be eager to proclaim the good news of Christ to others. Amen.